It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 403 for July 27th, 2014. This week, the Nigerian email scam now targets businesses. Sometimes with tech support, you just have to be persistent. Apple, it seems, could be spying on you. Chromebooks starting to push Apple out of schools. Rent that ebook you want to read. And Netflix hits another growth spurt. It's the story of the scam that never dies. You receive an email from someone claiming to be a lawyer in Nigeria. This lawyer, or sometimes it's a bank clerk, wants you to help them get several million dollars out of the country. They'll give you 30% of it just for helping. This scam has been around since before the internet. Email is only the latest iteration of the fraud that once came by mail or fax. Most people of average intelligence know that it's a scam and throw the messages away. But now the scammers seem to be trying something new. The basis of the ploy is about the same. The fraudsters have no intention of giving you any money, but they'd like you to transfer some of your money to their accounts. Usually it starts with an email that contains what appears to be a benign link, but it's not. In other cases, virus-laden attachments are distributed via email. When processed with a program called Data Scrambler, the malware can fly under your antivirus application's radar. For the last three months, security researchers at Palo Alto Networks, a security firm, have been tracking a series of cyber attacks affecting clients based in Taiwan and South Korea. The attacks, Palo Alto Networks said in a report this week, originate in Nigeria and are being orchestrated by some of the same people behind the Nigerian 419 swindle. In that one, fraud artists try to trick foreign victims into transferring money into their bank accounts. The latest attacks, researchers say, are an example of how even unsophisticated actors can buy off-the-shelf hacking tools that allow them to spy on and eventually steal from victims without being detected by traditional antivirus products. Scammers have been getting smarter. But the gang running this scam clearly proved you don't need to have too much on the ball to launch a scam. The fraudsters leave a lot of tracks back to themselves. In many cases, the track leads back to Nigeria. And one fool even posted questions about the malware and how it works on his Facebook and Twitter accounts. Those accounts no longer exist. If a link is included in the message, clicking it will download and install malware. An example of the malware involved is called NetWire. It can allow a remote user to administer the machine, and not just Windows. For those who feel that Apple's OS X or Linux are free from threats, please note NetWire is a cross-platform application. In other words, it's equal opportunity malware. Although the Nigerian scams have typically targeted individuals, the fraudsters now seem to be going after businesses. Once you have remote control software installed and you're able to record a user's keystrokes, there's no end to the valuable information you can extract from a business computer.
Netgear router that I purchased several months ago offers two USB ports that can be used for network attached storage. I had been using it for only a few weeks when the old 300 gigabyte hard drive I had plugged in failed. Well, I could replace that drive with a one terabyte drive, 70 bucks, or a two terabyte drive, 80 bucks. Double the size, $10 in difference. I selected the larger drive, and thereby, as an author from another age might have said, hangs a tail. The new Seagate 2TB drive arrived. I plugged it into the USB 3 port. The router didn't see it. I tried plugging it into the USB 2 port. It wasn't recognized there either. So on June 10th, I opened a ticket with Netgear. I said, I have a Nighthawk R7000 updated to the latest firmware version. The USB drive I was using for network attached storage died and I have replaced it. When I plugged the USB drive into the router, it was not recognized. The drive is formatted and is recognized by any PC I connected to. I have tried connecting it to the USB port on the back, I believe USB 2.0, as well as to the USB 3.0 port on the front of the router. The Seagate 2TB drive, model STB2000100, has an external power supply. It is connected. The power light is on. No drivers are required. Pressing refresh does nothing. Pressing edit or create network folder returns no disk. I have rebooted the router and the computer, and I am now out of ideas. A day later, I tried several other drives I had on hand, and what I found is that the router would recognize any drive one terabyte or smaller, but could not see anything larger. The Netgear technician insisted that the router does support two terabyte and three terabyte drives. And over the next several weeks, and yes, it was several weeks, we went through the usual litany of lower-level tech support questions and answers, including many that I had answered already in my initial comment. I was asked to install an older version of the router firmware. That, of course, didn't help. Eventually, the case made its way through Tier 2 and up to Tier 3 support and finally all the way to engineering. Engineering created special firmware that included a debug operation, I installed that, and the technician I was working with ran it and collected information that could be used to mitigate the problem. Netgear wanted to replace the router, and because I couldn't be without a router for a week or more, I paid $20 to have a replacement shipped before the defective router was returned. It was no surprise to me that the replacement had exactly the same performance as the original. At that point, the case was escalated to Tier 3 support, and by July 2nd, it had been further escalated to engineering. On July 15th, a Netgear technician wrote, We have been given a copy of a beta driver by our engineering department that might possibly fix the issue that you are experiencing. As of July 17th, the external USB drive was working, as long as I connected it to the slower USB 2 port still not recognized by the USB 3 port. Speed is not essential for this drive, so after more than 40 days, I consider this case resolved. At the end of the week, Netgear, though, was asking me for the bottle number of the 3TB drive. I explained to them it is really a 2TB drive and is exactly the same drive that I gave them the model number for on the 10th of June. My point here is not, oh, poor me, look what I had to deal with. Not even close. I do have to give Netgear credit for doing the right thing, but only when I pushed and pushed 
and pushed. If you have an electronic device and it's not working, don't give up. That's the point. You'll find a lightly edited version of the entire ticket. It's on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Oh, and by the way, Seagate isn't very well represented here either. While I was working with Netgear support, I opened a case with Seagate and asked if they were aware of any reason why one of their drives wouldn't be recognized by a router that's intended to be used with external USB drives. The response utterly floored me. Thank you for contacting Seagate support, it began. I understand you are having an issue with your external drive not working on your router. Unfortunately, the external drives are meant to be used with a computer, and we do not support the external drives being used on a router. I would recommend checking with the manufacturer of the external drive, and I'm sure he meant router there, and see what formats the router recognizes. The external drive is a 4K sector size formatted in NTFS, and, I might note, NTFS is exactly what the router expected. Since the drive does show up on a computer and works, the issue is with the formatting on the external drive, he said. Actually, I have to point out, that is a totally unsupportable assumption, and it was wrong. Again, he said, I do apologize for the issue you're having. So at this point, I concluded that Seagate support is apparently staffed by people who probably believe that a hard drive is what happens on I-5 between Los Angeles and San Diego. Because the response was so idiotic and the problem was clearly with the router, I didn't bother to contact Seagate again. an account that is as American as Apple Spy. Many people believe, somewhat inaccurately, that Apple devices are immune to hackers and malware. That's wrong, of course, but it's worse than that. It seems that Apple may have built-in back doors to their various operating systems, and that those back doors give them access to your data. Jonathan Zdiarski is a forensic scientist. He's also an author and he's known as the hacker Nervegas among iPhone developers. Among the books he's written is Hacking and Securing iOS Applications for O'Reilly Books. What he has to say about iOS devices is both interesting and worrying. He has demonstrated undocumented high-value forensic services running on every iOS device, and he says that Apple's phones make information available that should never come off the device without user consent. Stiarski summarizes the iOS 4 security model and notes that very little has changed all the way up to version 7. Simply screen locking an iPhone doesn't encrypt the data, he says. In fact, the only true way to encrypt data involves turning the phone off. This means that your phone is almost always at risk of spilling its data, since it's almost always authenticated, even while locked. So, Apple can collect data without your consent, and as requested, provide it to any government agency. That kind of gives you a warm and fuzzy feeling about Apple now, doesn't it?
In the early days, back, oh, maybe three years ago, Google's Chromebooks couldn't get any respect. That has changed as the operating system has matured and cloud-based storage has gone mainstream. Now it seems that those little computers are poised to make a dent in Apple's iPad penetration in schools. This could have long-term implications for Apple, of course, but also for Microsoft. Back in the days of the Apple II, the machines were heavily discounted for schools, and an entire generation grew up with those devices. Schools still rely heavily on Apple for in-school computing devices, and many districts provide iPads for all students. iPads, though, are considerably more expensive than Chromebooks, and they're somewhat harder to manage. Google's machines come with applications that allow school districts to manage the machines that are in students' hands, and Chromebooks, of course, have a keyboard, which, I would argue, makes them more usable in a school environment. Google says that it's expanding its Play for Education app and ebook store from Android tablets to Chromebooks, and this will make those little machines even more attractive to school systems. Microsoft has largely been locked out of the educational market, but recently began trying to push inexpensive low-end laptops into that market. What has to be worrisome for both Microsoft and Apple is the fact that students who are raised on Chromebooks will be likely to continue using those devices when they head for college and later when they move into the workforce. Chromebooks, of course, don't run Microsoft or Apple software. No iTunes, no Office Suite, likewise no Adobe Creative Cloud applications. But most of the functions that a large number of people use computers for are well served by apps, some of which are installed in the Chromebook and some that exist in the cloud. think of this next piece as Netflix for books. Amazon is starting a new $10 a month program that will provide access to thousands of ebooks and audiobooks. It is called Kindle Unlimited and it will offer subscribers access to 600,000 books and about 2,000 titles from Audible. New subscribers to Kindle Unlimited will also receive a three-month paid subscription to Audible's full service which has 150,000 titles. Now, Amazon is not known for stupid marketing practices. It's offering a 30-day free trial of the Kindle Unlimited. Obviously, the belief is that this will immediately boost membership. Amazon Prime already allows members to borrow some books, but only if they have an actual Kindle device. The new service applies to both Kindle readers and to other devices with the Kindle app. Despite being told that we live in a post-literate age, libraries seem busy. This year, nearly 80 million people will use readers of some sort to consume books, and that's nearing double-digit percentage growth from the year before. You won't find books from Hachette, HarperCollins, or Simon & Schuster on the list, though. This is probably bad news for Scribd and Oyster, both of which offer similar services. Scribd for $9 a month, Oyster $10 a month. Both offer hundreds of thousands of titles, including, though, those from publishers that refuse to work with Amazon. If you read no more than one book a month, the services don't make sense for you. 
but voracious readers may find that one of these plans is quite a bargain. from the Netflix of books to the Netflix of Netflix. Profits and revenues are up dramatically at Netflix, so are the number of subscribers finally topping 50 million. Second quarter earnings were $71 million on sales of $1.34 billion. When I said that profits and revenues were up, here's what I meant. Both of those are more than double what they were a year ago. There were concerns that the World Cup would pull viewers away from streaming services, but that didn't seem to be the case. In a conference call this week, CEO Reed Hastings says that everyone was surprised by the continued increase in subscribers even during the games. Increasingly, though, Netflix is providing its own original programming, and that programming has resulted in many Emmy nominations, 31 for Netflix programming overall, 12 for one program alone. Orange is the new black. This may say more about the state of American network television programming, though, than it says about Netflix. The company made it official that it will be launching streaming services in Austria, Belgium, France, Germany, Luxembourg, and Switzerland in September. These countries have more than 60 million households with high-speed internet access, and high-speed really is an accurate term in much of Europe. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.